FC. It is uh, such a joy that we have <clears throat> to be able to come together with our family and worship uh, to celebrate Jesus' birth. There's really nothing better we could be doing right now on Christmas morning than to be worshiping together. Uh, I just ask you to pray one more time with me now as we enter into this time of uh, hearing from God's word. So you bow your heads with me. Father, we are so thankful uh, for your word that you have divinely revealed yourself to us through the written word. And we know that your word uh, never returns void, that your word will stand uh, forever when other things fail. And Father, we come to your word expectant this morning uh, that it will um, convict us and change us and profit uh, for us for our lives as we strive to serve you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, even though it is Christmas, we are going to finish up our uh, sermon series. You asked, these are all questions that you guys submitted to Pastor Lucas, something that you wanted to hear a sermon on, and thankfully, one of the questions uh, was very Christmassy, and so that is the question we are going to answer today, and that question is this, how should we view Mary? That's my fanciest slide. None of the rest of them have animations. This is the question, how should we view Mary? Um, And I think that this is an important question for two main reasons. The first one, I think it's an apologetically important question because there are a lot of people out there in the world that have all kinds of views about Mary. Um, One of the main ones being with the Catholic Church. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, But even people who have gone to church at one point or another or you know friends or family who are Catholic or whatever the case may be, there are a lot of people out there who get confused on this topic because There's so many, I mean, you've got churches named after Mary, you've got all these different doctrines and dogmas, and it's confusing. And so we need to be able to actually respond and talk to people about the different views of Mary that are out there. And I think the other and more important reason that we should answer this question and figure out how to view Mary is because she's in Scripture. She's she's in there. We think about her every Christmas. She's in songs we sing. She's around, and she's in Scripture. And uh, we can't afford to just avoid a topic that's in Scripture just because We know people who take it too far in the other direction. I think a lot of times Protestants are a little scared to touch the Mary subject just because we know there's just so much out there that these people teach this and that, and we just kind of shy away from it. We're like, well, we don't, we're about Jesus. We don't need to talk about Mary. Um, But she's in there. You know, we come across her in Scripture, and so we need to know, well, how should we view her? Is there a view uh, that we should have of Mary? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. It'll be a slightly atypical Christmas sermon, probably, because we're about to go into a bunch of slides that I've put together here because I think in order to actually get to the scriptural view of Mary, we first have to deal with some of the non-scriptural views of Mary that are out there. Specifically, we can't talk about Mary without at least addressing the Catholic view of Mary, which is probably the predominant view throughout the world. Millions of Catholic Christians out there. Uh, And there's teaching in the Catholic Church about Mary that I think It will serve us well to address that so we can then cut through all of that and get to what does Scripture actually say about Mary. And so that's what we're going to do, and I'm going to go as fast as humanly possible through all of these slides because really there's a lot, uh, a lot of teaching on Mary, um, and I think it's important that we just quickly address as much of it as we can. So if you are confused or you want to talk more about it, I couldn't fit it all in here, but I have plenty uh, of info about it. If you want more, uh, please come talk to me about it, but... I've already talked too much. We've got to get into these slides here. The first thing we need to understand is actually just what's the difference between Protestants and Catholics? And I think we all know this, but these are the main five differences. These are the five solas. These were mentioned in our 
uh, uh, Reformed theology sermons. These are the day, if you believe these five things, you are not Catholic. And specifically for Mary, there are two that are going to be at issue. The main thing is Sola Scriptura. It's going to become very evident as we go through all of these teachings on Mary that uh, that's the main issue. And then Sola Fide will also come into play. So here's Sola Scriptura. This is what we believe. Only Scripture, because it's God's inspired word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority. That's what we believe here. God's word is our authority for anything we teach or do in the church. Here's the Catholic view. Both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same devotion and reverence. Uh, So hopefully that's obvious, the difference there. For us, only the Bible has authority for anything we teach. In the Catholic Church, it's the Bible and it's the church authority. And they draw that authority from tradition. From There's lots of reasons why they have that, but... Those are the, they're, they're on the same level. So the ch- Bible can say something, and the church can say something. This is true, and then it is true. Same level of scripture. It's, it's doctrine that they teach. Um, okay, and then also, sola fide, this is what we believe. We are counted righteous before God, only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by faith, not for our own works. I think we all get that. We're saved by faith alone. We, we can't earn it. We can't merit our own salvation. That is not the Catholic view. This, this is uh, from... You know, the Council of Trent, which was right after the Reformation, they said, if anyone says that the God is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. For faith, unless hope and charity are added, neither unites one perfectly with Christ nor makes him a living member of his body. This is probably the difference between Catholics and Protestants. They believe you have to actually merit, you have to bring along your merit alongside what Christ has done for you. That's the Catholic view. And that matters for Mary because of the Catholic view of prayer. One of the things you do to merit your salvation in the Catholic view is to pray. And they actually believe that other people can help you merit your salvation. So I, here's, here's the, uh, from the catechism. This is talking about prayer. Moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Basically, they believe that intercessory prayer, like if I were to say, hey, Elias, man, I need you to pray for me on this thing. I need, you know, Lucas, I need you to pray for me on this I need some prayer. They believe that that prayer then can actually merit things for me. And they extend that belief on prayer to saints. They say, well, you can actually pray to saints and those saints will pray on your behalf. And those prayers that the saints pray on your behalf, they can, they can help you merit salvation. And then, of course, we know that Catholic uh, Christians do pray to Mary. And so that's where that view is going to come into play. There's one last thing to note quickly about what the Catholic Church teaches. There's actually different levels of teaching within the Catholic Church. There's doctrines and then there's dogmas. Doctrines, anything the church teaches. But a dogma is like the highest level of possible teaching. And they're saying this thing, we're going to define it and it is from God. It is divinely revealed. This dogma is from God. Uh, Here's the long quote from the Catechism. Basically, all it's just saying is that that the church holds authority from Christ and they exercise that authority to the highest degree when it's a dogma. They're saying this is from Christ. This is what he has said and you have to believe it. And so the difference between doctrine and dogma, doctrine, you can disagree with that and it's still a problem. It's still sinful. It's, you still got to work that out. If you disagree with a dogma, heretic. It's a heresy to disagree with dogma. Uh, and that matters for Mary. Now we're finally going to get to Mary because there are four dogmas that the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. There are four things that they say, you have to believe these or else it's heresy. They have defined that this is from God. Here are the four things that the Catholic Church teaches about Mary, the Marian dogmas. Mother of God, perpetual virginity, immaculate conception, bodily assumption. 
We're now going to just run through those briefly. Again, this is going to be the super fast version. There's a lot more to be said about each of these probably, but just what is it? What do they believe? And what would be the response from our end? First, uh, the first dogma is that Mary is called the mother of God. Now this comes from the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. They said that if anyone does not confess that God is truly Emmanuel and that on this account the Holy Virgin is the mother of God, the Theotokos, let him be anathema. Um, this one takes a little background. This will be the long, we'll spend the longest time on this one because it takes a, a little background to understand what's going on. At this time in the 400s AD, there were a lot of heresies running around about who Christ was. Pastor Lucas just preached two sermons on his humanity and his deity. That was one of the big questions at all these councils. They had all these councils that came up with the creeds, Nicene Creed, all these creeds you've heard of, because people were saying all kinds of uh, heretical things about who Christ was, specifically about his two natures, humanity and deity. And in this particular instance, there was a guy, Nestorius, who claimed that and said that Mary just gave birth to the human part of Jesus. Mary just gave birth to the human, and then the two natures loosely connected, not really sure how that works. That's the Nestorian heresy. And so they got together and said, we got to fight against this. Mary didn't just give birth to a human. Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, fully God and fully man. And so they came up with this word, Theotokos, Theo being God, Tokos having to do with childbearing and giving birth. And it means God-bearer or mother of God. And so on this dogma, we can actually mostly agree with the Catholic Church. This, this word, Theotokos, is a theologically correct term. It's orthodox. Almost all Christians agree on this um, because the word actually is not saying something about Mary. It's talking about the nature of Jesus Christ. This word exists in this creed to protect the Emmanuel part. If anyone does not confess that God is truly Emmanuel, God with us. And so they came up with Theotokos, Mary bore God, not just a human, not just any random person. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in the womb, and Mary brought him forth into the world. Here is, um, this is James White, uh, a Protestant apologist. The term God-bearer, as it was used in the creed, said something about the nature of Christ, not the nature of Mary. Mother of God is a phrase that has proper theological meaning only in reference to Christ. Uh, here's another one, Scott McKnight. This is, if, if mother of God means God-bearer, as the one who gave birth to the human Jesus, who as a single person was the God-man, then we can stand together and affirm that Mary is the mother of God. That's, that's true. We can believe that and affirm that. I will say one caveat, which is just that the term mother of God, I think is confusing. Because when you say mother of God, it sounds like it's this title given to Mary and it's talking about Mary, when the whole point of it was to say, no, no, Jesus is God. Uh, and so I don't think we're going to start using the term mother of God very frequently just because I think it's too confusing. Oh, is she before God somehow? Is she over God? Is she like God in some way? No, none of that is true. So I think God-bearer is actually a better translation, but the idea is that Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ, who was the God-man, fully God, fully man. That's the first one. Unfortunately, the last point of agreement we're going to have for the rest of these, and we're going to go quickly through the next three because the problem's the same each time. Uh, So the next one is that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Here's from the council uh, in 649. Mary conceived without any detriment to her virginity, which remained inviolate even after his birth. Here's the doctrine. It says that Mary was a virgin before she gave birth to Jesus. Amen. Uh, Right. It says that all over scripture. That's true. It's the virgin birth. That Mary was a virgin in the act of giving birth to Jesus. You're like, okay, it's a little weird. Okay, whatever. That Mary was a virgin for the rest of her life. She married Joseph 
They never consummated the marriage. She never had any other children. Jesus had no brothers and sisters. That is the official dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church. Uh, the problem, of course, with this teaching is that it's not in Scripture. Uh, this, this is Tim Staples. He used to be Protestant. He's a Catholic apologist now. This is not to say we find a detailed biblical defense or definition of Mary's perpetual virginity. We do not. He goes on to say, well, but we find this and that. We find they imply it here. They, they say it might be like that here. But the bottom line is, Mary's perpetual virginity is not found in Scripture. She was a virgin before she gave birth to Jesus. She was conceived virgin birth miracle. And then after she married Joseph, and it was a normal marriage, she had other kids. Scripture tells us she had other kids. So they'll say, well, the kids were cousins. They're, they have all these explanations. But the bottom line is, it's not in Scripture in the first place. The idea of a virgin entering into an engagement with a man, even though she intends to remain celibate, is simply an attempt to make the biblical evidence support a doctrine created long after the apostles had finished writing scripture. Um, so this is not like the craziest, worst doctrine of all time. There are some Protestants who actually hold to this. A lot of people throughout church history have. But it's a slippery slope once we start teaching as divine revelation things that aren't actually found in scripture. And you'll see just how slippery the slope gets as we go to this next doctrine. So the first one, 400 A.D., this one, 600s A.D., the next one, uh, 1854. The Pope, in 1854, declared from God that the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, by a singular grace and privilege granted by God, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. And it's a doctrine revealed by God and to believe, be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. Here's the doctrine, that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without sin and then also was preserved from sin for her entire life. Mary remained sinless for her entire life. That is the official dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church. Hopefully you can see the problem, which is the same problem. It's not in Scripture. First and foremost, it's just not there. Uh, This is another Catholic apologist admitting the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary is not explicitly revealed in Scripture. They didn't get it from Scripture. They got it directly from the Pope in 1854. Now, again, it's not that they come up with this out of nowhere. They have uh, verses they try to use to explain it. They have church father quotes they try to use to explain it. Um, but the bottom line is that it's not in Scripture and also that it just goes against what Scripture actually teaches, which is that all have sinned. All have sinned. The only sinless person ever in history was Jesus Christ. That's why he's able to serve as a perfect sacrifice for us. Why would Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that someone else was sinless. Um, or that someone else was kept from sin, or whatever the case may be. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Um, This next one uh, follows immediately from that one. If you have the last one we had, you have to have this one. 1950 now, less than 100 years ago, the Pope declared the Immaculate Mother of God, when the course of her earthly life was ended, was taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven. Basically, if Mary never sinned, that Mary didn't have to die. Sin is what causes death. Mary was perfect and sinless. She was kept from sin. And so at the end of her life, instead of dying, or potentially when she died, that part's confusing, she was bodily assumed into heaven. Think like Enoch or Elijah in the Old Testament, taken up into heaven. Um, Again, what's the biggest problem? It's not in Scripture. Where's the proof from Scripture? There is none. This is from a Catholic again. There is no proof. But it was said by the Catholic Church, the authority from Christ... Uh, and so then it's true and you must follow it. Um, those are the four dogmas of the Catholic Church uh, about Mary. Now there's actually 
one bonus doctrine about Mary, and then we'll move on to how we should view her. This is not dogma, so you can disagree with this and not be a heretic in the Catholic Church, but you're still, I mean, they do teach this, which is that Mary is the co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all grace. If those words, like, make you jump out of your seat like she's the what? Uh, they should. <laughs> um, here's, here's from, this is Vatican II. So this is in the 1960s that this was, um, that they wrote this down and proclaimed it here. But in a wholly singular way, Mary cooperated in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. Okay, this is a long quote. But basically what it's saying is, this is from Vatican II, that the motherhood of Mary continues from the Annunciation to the end of time, to the, to the, when all the elect are saved, and she's taken up into heaven where she has a saving office where she intercedes on our behalf before Christ to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. And therefore, they call her the advocate, the helper, the benefactress, and the mediatrix. It's like stunning to read that. I mean, it's just crazy. And that's not even all the titles. They also call her the queen of heaven. This doesn't talk about the redemptrix part. She's with Christ. She helps save us because she cooperates with Christ. It's, it's just crazy. Again, the main problem is uh, it's not in Scripture at all. And more than that, this one, more than any of the other doctrines, really cuts against what Scripture teaches as true, which is that there's one mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, they go in circles trying to explain, no, no, Jesus is still the one mediator. But Mary just also mediates. I mean, they call her the Mediatrix, capital M. How can Jesus be the one mediator? if you're calling someone else the mediator. It just doesn't make any sense and goes directly against Scripture. And even more than that, we looked at this, um, <clears throat> this uh, verse last night. Why did Jesus, I mean, what, what, about, what about Christmas needed to happen? Jesus needed to become human for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was that he could live our life perfectly, go and be a perfect sacrifice, and then on the other end of that, he understands us. He intercedes for us before the Father because he understands what we've gone through. The view in the Catholic Church is that Mary, oh, she's, if, if you take together all of the views about, that we already said, the four dogmas, you take together the idea that we can pray to a saint and they can then help us merit salvation. When those are put together and put on Mary, you go, oh, well, I gotta pray to Mary. She's, she's the greatest. She's the queen of heaven. She's in heaven and she must have some sway over Jesus because she's his mother and she's the queen. And so, and also, on top of that, she's nice, right? She's a mom. She gets us. And so sometimes Jesus is scary. He's going to come and judge the living and the dead, but, but Mary cares about us. She's a, she's a mother. We'll go to her, and she'll go to Jesus on our behalf. Which is just directly against the whole reason why Jesus became a human in the first place. We, what does it tell us to do in verse 16? To run to the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus understands us, to find help. Not to run to Mary because Jesus is some scary God king. Jesus gets us. He's a human, and he went through everything we went through, faced our temptations so that we can come to him for help. We don't need to go to anyone else for help. We don't need to go to his mom so that she'll maybe go to him on our, her behalf. We go straight to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this one, um, I think, is probably the worst one. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's not yet a dogma, but it could be um, someday become a dogma. Um, but it is what they teach. When you ask them, you talk to Catholic priests, this is the doctrine that they teach. Um, well, it's the same problem as all of them. It's not in Scripture. Here's some just quotes to sum it up and then we'll get into our own view. <clears throat> this is what happens when you don't have sola scriptura. Scripture is what defines the edges for us for what we believe. We can think and think all these theological things. Oh, what if Mary was like this? Oh, I, I bet Mary had to be sinless because of this or that. But then we look at Scripture and that's the guardrail. 
And if we bump into the guardrail, we don't teach that. If it's outside the guardrail, we don't teach it. The Mary of Roman Catholicism is not the Mary of the Bible, which begs the question we started with, who is the Mary of the Bible? How, how do we view Mary? If all of that is not true, if all of that is not from Scripture, what is in Scripture? And so that's what we're going to do now. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> there were a couple passages we could have gone to to look at Mary. In fact, there's only a few passages about Mary in the Bible. She's in the four Gospels a couple times. After the Gospels, she's in the Bible twice. She's in Acts one time, and then in Galatians, Paul calls Jesus born of a woman, and that's it. Like, it's not like Mary is all over the pages of Scripture. She's in the Gospels, in the birth narratives of Jesus, and a couple times throughout his ministry. So for us, I, think the, I thought the best text we could do for this morning is to go to Luke chapter 1, and this is the, in verse, starting in verse 26, this is the first time we meet Mary in the book of Luke. So if you start reading Luke, first you read about John the Baptist's birth and birth announcement. Then in verse 26, we're introduced for the first time to Mary. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read this passage, and then we're, gonna, we're not going to do like a full sermon on every single verse in here, but we're just going to look at the verses that say, tell us something about Mary. And we're going to put together a picture of who Mary is, who does the Bible say she is, and then how should we view her based on that. So if you read with me, this starts in uh, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, who in her old age has also conceived a son. And in this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. <clears throat> Here's what I think the point is. Here's what I think the point is. Here's what I think we learn about Mary from this passage, and then we'll go through and, and try and prove the point. But here it is. How should we view Mary? We should view her as an example of faithful obedience. I think that's what this passage tells us. How do we view her? We view her as an example of faithful obedience. Um, and I think we can come to that conclusion based on several things in this passage. Here's what we're going to do. Starting in verse 26, we're just going to go straight down, and we're going to stop every time it tells us something about Mary and see what it's saying about her. First, we have to figure out who actually is the biblical Mary. Who, who does the Bible tell us she is? And then we'll get to the part where we view her as an example. So here's verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Okay, stop there. That's the first thing we learn about Mary. She's from Nazareth. If you're reading through Luke, the, fir the first you know, part of Luke with John the Baptist is in the center of Israel. It's in the temple. It's in the very middle of Jerusalem, the middle of Israel, the place where God dwells with his people. It's like this public announcement. People know Zechariah becomes mute. People are like aware of what's happening. It's like this big thing, all people around. And then the camera kind of pans out in verse 26, scrolls up to the north part of Israel, 
to a tiny town called Nazareth. Um, Nazareth, uh, there's nothing special about Nazareth. It's in a, an unimportant part of Israel and Galilee, and it's an unimportant town. It's small, poor. Um, if you remember in John chapter 1, Jesus is calling the disciples, and Nathaniel, he goes, hey, the Messiah, the Messiah is here. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth was like not a good place to be from. So the, so far, all we know about Mary, she's from this tiny town that nobody cares about, okay? Verse 27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, this is actually, I think, the verse where we learn the most about Mary in this passage. We learn her name, Mary, and we learn that she's a virgin uh, betrothed to be married. And I would suggest to you that if you went back in time to the first century, to Israel, and you went to the town of Nazareth, and you found a, a woman who was Mary's age, you would expect her to be a virgin who was betrothed to be married. I think this is like the most normal possible thing that the Bible could tell us about who Mary is. Um, <clears throat> she, uh, all of the commentaries I read were in agreement here on, on the fact that Mary was very young, probably like 12 to 15, which is crazy to us. But that was the typical age when they would arrange these marriages in the, in the Jewish culture. They had two families. They find a suitable husband and wife. And then they get betrothed. They exchange this bride price. They literally pay uh, money and animals and whatever to the, the woman's family. And then they're officially almost legally married, but then they live separately until the final wedding uh, where they come together. Um, all of that is totally normal. You would expect that Mary, a girl living in Nazareth who's 12 to 15, would either be betrothed or getting betrothed soon, and it should be a virgin. That was what was expected of every, I mean, that was like the norm. That's always what happened. So, so far, just keeping track, what the Bible has told us is Mary is from a town nobody knows about, or a, a small town that nobody cares about, and she is a normal Jewish girl who is betrothed to be married. In fact, the only noteworthy thing we learn in verse 27 is that her husband is from the house of David. It's not even about Mary. It doesn't tell us Mary's background. It's not like, oh, Mary's from this great lineage no, her husband's from David, and that's all we learn about Mary's background. Um, it does tell us later on that she's Elizabeth's cousin, so maybe, you know, Elizabeth married a priest, so maybe there's a Levitical connection, but Scripture doesn't seem to be concerned with Mary's background at all. All it gives us is that she's just a normal Jewish girl who's about to be married. Um, <clears throat> unless we think that she's just, uh, just this random heathen person. She is, in fact, a devout Jew, a, a believer. If you look down, this is not in our passage, but if you look down to the Magnificat, starting in verse 46, you'll see that that thing is soaked with Scripture. When you read the Magnificat, the whole thing is echoing Hannah's song from 1 Samuel, and all through it are allusions and, and references to Old Testament Scripture. So we know that Mary, a typical, normal Jewish girl, was a believer. She, she knew the Old Testament. She knew Scriptures. Uh, so we can say probably the biblical portrait of Mary is that she was a normal believer. Totally typical average believer. That's what scripture tells us. We don't get anything else. We can assume and add all kinds of things onto that, but that's all it says in this text. One more thing to prove that Mary is just a normal person is in the angel's greeting. Verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Um, a lot has been made of this greeting. This is one of the passages uh, the Catholic Church uses. They, they have a different translation. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. 
Um, and that's one of the things they say that makes Mary sinless. She, well, she's full of grace completely, so there's no sin. She's entirely full. Uh, I think even if you translate it that way, that's not what the, the greeting is. It's just a greeting. It literally is, is hello, greetings. And then it's, the angel calls her a favored one. Why is Mary favored? She's favored because God has chosen her to bear the Messiah. That's where the favor comes from. It's not that she earned it. It doesn't say, oh, you're favored. You're this great person. God wants to bless you with this incredible gift. She's favored because an angel just showed up in front of her and is about to tell her she's going to bear the Messiah. That is what it means that Mary is a favored one. And then she's greatly troubled at the saying. Uh, Every time people meet angels in the Bible, actually most of the time they just fall down and are terrified. Mary actually does a little better than that. So maybe she's, you know, blessed in that way. But she's troubled. She says, what? What could this greeting be? She's, not, uh, she's troubled because an angel just showed up to her and said, you're a favored one of God. And she's going, uh-oh, what does that mean? It's a good thing, right? But what is, that, what is this angel about to say to me? She's trying to figure out what the angel is going to say. All of that together means just this. Mary was a normal, ordinary, regular believer. And here's the application for us. <clears throat> Hopefully you can, you can start to see it. As we get an accurate picture of what the Bible says about Mary... Uh, then we are reminded that we shouldn't put characters in the Bible, Mary or otherwise, up on a pedestal that Scripture doesn't put them on. Uh, the, the God's thing that he does all the way through, cover to cover in Scripture, is not to wait for a perfect person, is not to wait for somebody who's super great and is going to do all these great things and then he chooses them to do his will. God uses just normal, sinful people to accomplish his plans throughout all of Scripture. I mean, think of Abraham. The guy was just a a random guy. It doesn't tell us about Abraham's background. We don't know. All we know is that he came from Ur. And God said, okay, you're in Ur. I'm bringing you over here, and I'm making you a nation. There's nothing special about Abraham before God plucks him out and says, I'm choosing you to become a nation. It's the same with Mary, and it's the same with basically everyone in Scripture. God uses imperfect, normal people to accomplish miraculous things. And it's the same with Mary. And the other side of that coin is this. Don't, Don't put yourself down. Don't raise people in Scripture up and don't put yourself down lower than where you are. We're all on the same playing field. Everybody, sometimes I think we're tempted, um, we kind of go through our lives, go to church every Sunday, go to our job throughout the week, try to raise our family, just try to do, and it just feels normal. We're just doing nothing, it feels like. We're just kind of doing the same thing, just trying to live well and doing what we can. And sometimes I think we we let that get to us. We're like, oh man, nothing, I wish I could do something good or do something great for the Lord. I wish there was something special about my life or I think I'm just a... I keep sinning, I keep, and we just get into this thing where we take ourselves down and we're like, man, my life just seems so boring and normal. What's, what's going on? Why can't, what's God doing? And I think that the witness of scripture is that those are the people, that's everybody. Everybody is just a normal, ordinary believer who's trying to live out their lives faithfully and God works through that. God uses normal people to accomplish his plans. The fact that God has tasked us with sharing his gospel in this world is incredible. That's an amazing task that every ordinary normal believer has, uh, the greatest task that we could have. So don't put people in the Bible on a pedestal that doesn't exist in here, and don't put yourself down, but have an accurate view of what Scripture says. Well, now that we have that accurate view of Mary, now to close it out, we're going to go to, starting in verse 34, how does Mary respond to the angel? How does Mary respond to this news? And that's going to inform how we then follow her example. How do we view her? We follow her example. Here's verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? So the first thing Mary says to the angel after the announcement is is a question. 
And I think that this question is not a question of disbelief, a question of doubt, a question of um, anything like that. I think Mary immediately believes exactly what the angel says is going to come true. And then she wonders, wow, since that's going to happen, how is that going to happen? I'm a virgin. We also know that this is not a doubting answer because if you look back to the beginning of Luke, when the angel comes to Zechariah, uh, Zechariah doubts the angel. He says, well, how should I know this? I'm old. My wife is old. How's, how's this going to happen? And the angel, or rather God, punishes Zechariah because he wasn't, fit, he wasn't believing what was going to happen. Zechariah then is mute until John the Baptist is born. Well, how does the angel respond to Mary's question? Verse 35, he answers it. How, how will this happen? Well, it'll happen like this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Mary's immediate response to the angel is to believe the angel and to say, okay, God, you're telling me this is true. My faith is in you. I trust you. I believe you. How exactly is this going to work? And she asks a question out of faith, believing that it's going to happen. Mary says one more thing to the angel. Verse uh, 38. Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I think that Mary's answer here in in the very end of this passage is just a stunning example of obedience. Think about what the angel said to her, right? Her whole life is going to get turned upside down. This is going to mess up her whole life. She's betrothed to a man. He's going to be upset when she's pregnant all of a sudden. Uh, People around are going to be looking at her like, what are you doing? And beyond that, once she actually, she has to then raise the Messiah. One day she will see him die on the tree. Mary's life gets totally turned around by this news. This is, this is a, a command from God that has real consequences for Mary's life. And instead of fighting it, instead of trying to get out of it, instead of arguing, instead of doubting, instead of any of these things she could have, do, she could have done, Mary just believes God, takes him at his word, and says, I'm your servant, God. Let it be as you have said. What an unbelievable example of obedience. Um, there are just normal believers throughout all of Scripture, but a lot of them, when they get news like this, are like, no, like Zechariah. What, I don't believe it. What are you talking about? Mary, incredibly, has this obedience that says, Lord, I'm your servant. Whatever you say, I'm going to do it. Let it be. Um, hopefully you can see what I think is the obvious application here. We should follow Mary's example. How do we view Mary? We view her as an incredible example of obedience. In the face of news that was life-changing, that had big consequences for her life, she didn't fight it and she said, God, let it be. Let it be as you say, I'm your servant. And we should first be encouraged by Mary that she's just a normal person, but also be challenged by Mary. How, I mean, the, and, and take up this charge of obedience that she took. When we see her just immediately being like, okay, God, that's great, let it be. How many of us actually respond like that when stuff happens in our lives? Stuff comes at us, do we go, okay, God, you're in control, let it be, I'm gonna follow you. Or do we go, God, what are you doing? Come on, man, what's happening? and we get upset about stuff, we freak out, Mary should challenge us to say, all right, normal, ordinary believers, when we run into stuff in life, what do we do? We faithfully obey God. We believe in him, we trust in him, and we obey him. Unless we think that our obedience has less consequences than Mary's, uh, if we're actually truly following God's word, everything it says in it, obeying it all the way through, then we are gonna run into consequences in this life. We're told that Troubles and persecutions will come. We're told that the world hated Jesus and so it hates his followers. If you actually follow his word, it's not a decision without consequences. Uh, The consequences will come, whether it's a lost job, a lost friendship, whatever it may be. When we obey God with the simple, faithful obedience that Mary obeyed God, 
we face consequences. It's not easy, but it is a challenge that Mary calls us to rise up to. And it's not that we never question God, we never have questions about what's going on, but the bottom line is that we believe and trust in him and have faith in him and obey him no matter what. Even if we're like, God, how's that going to work? That doesn't make sense, God. How do we do that? The bottom line is, let it be. No matter what, I trust you, God. I obey you. Let it be. So that, I think, is how we view Mary from Scripture. I think Scripture tells us she's an ordinary believer who had incredible obedience to God's plan. So as we go out of here and we go out to open presents and spend time with family for the rest of the day or whatever we're doing, and we read the Christmas story and we come across Mary, instead of being like, ah, no, Mary, we just don't talk about her. We view Mary as she's portrayed in Scripture as someone who we can follow her example of obedience. But there's actually one more thing, I think, for Mary as we close out, uh, which is that maybe you noticed, I said that we were going to do this in the beginning, but we didn't actually go through every verse in this passage. We skipped most of the verses in this passage, actually, because I think this passage is not actually about Mary at all. Certainly Mary is a main character in the passage. Certainly Jesus could never have come without coming through a woman. But the actual point of this passage, the point this passage is making, is not about Mary at all. The point is about Jesus Christ, the Messiah who is going to come. Listen to what the angel says about Jesus in verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you know what the angel just said to Mary? This baby you're about to have is the Messiah, the person who's been promised for years, all of these prophecies, all of these things, this promise that there would be a Davidic king on the throne forever. This is him. This is that king. This passage is not about Mary at all. This passage should point us to worship our King Jesus who came and became human, took on flesh, so that he could one day save us and come into his kingdom and reign. And so the last thing I think we view Mary as as we go out of here this morning is that viewing Mary should cause us to view Christ and to worship him. We don't get stuck on Mary and go, oh, what about this about Mary? What about that? We say, wow, Mary, that's incredible obedience. Look at this Savior who you brought into the world. Always Mary should turn our view to Christ to worship him because that's the point of Christmas. It's not about Mary. It's about Jesus coming into the world to save us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word that we don't have to guess at things, we don't have to conjecture and come up with different ways that that we can figure stuff out, God, but you've just told us. You've given us the guideposts. You've given us the guide rails to know what is true about yourself. And God, we thank you for your servant Mary who was such a great example to us of obedience. And we ask, God, that we would rise up to that challenge, that as normal, ordinary, everyday believers, as we try to live faithful lives, God, that we would live them in complete obedience to your word. And even when trouble comes, when consequence comes, whatever comes at us, that we wouldn't be swayed, that we wouldn't question and freak out, but that we would just follow you in obedience, trusting uh, and call ourselves your servants as Mary did. And Father, I pray uh, as we think about Mary and think about Christmas that ultimately always our eyes would turn to Jesus, our Savior, who came and put on flesh for us. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.